Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Scott, welcome to episode 11. Hey, Mark. Great to be with you today. Today's an important one, obviously, and we have an incredible guest. But of course, first we have to do the disclaimer. You want to do the honors today? Yeah. Well, of course, as always, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Great. Well, today is a special episode in many ways. One, it's probably the most timely topic that we have in the industry right now. That's related to the access challenges related to all the obesity medicines. We have one of the nation's foremost experts, Dr. Angela Fitch, is joining us today. She's the co-founder and chief medical officer of Known Well. She's the president of the Obesity Medicine Association and uh, faculty at Harvard Medical School as well. And in one of the small worlds, like this was all meant to be, it, it, even though we were introduced through another third party, it turns out that Angela is, is married to my partner, Bob, and his wife, Sarah's nephew. So she's part of the family, believe it or not. How about it. that? Well, we're, we're happy to have you with us, Angela, for all those reasons. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, it is an important topic. And I do want to start with the, the fact that you are an obesity medicine sort of specialist, and that's a relatively new specialty that uh, more physicians are focused on. So can you sort of share with us how, how it's all evolved over the last or first for you, a couple decades, but how it's all evolved over the last decade as well. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And um, again, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a timely topic, as you mentioned, but also not really a new topic, right? I mean, it it's getting a lot of uh, new attention, which it, it rightfully deserves, because for probably the last you know 15 years or so, we've been really, as, a, as an organization, the Obesity Medicine Association actually was founded in 1950. That's 1950. So that's how old we are as an association of clinicians that practice obesity medicine. So people have been practicing obesity medicine for quite some time, despite the fact that we haven't had these newer medications that we have today that are so much more successful at creating, you know, better outcomes, right? And so again, you know, we've been doing this for for quite some time, myself personally, I've been doing obesity medicine full time since about 2011, 2010. And, you know, I started in primary care. And, you know, as I was working with primary care patients, both internal medicine and pediatric, so I do also treat adolescents with obesity. And, you know, over the course of those years, people would come in and they'd ask me, like, how do you lose weight? I need to lose weight, right? And and it was one of those things as a doctor, even, you know, back in my early days in, in the early 2000s, you know, when I got out of residency, you know, I'd be like, oh, I don't know, you know, Weight Watchers, uh, Jenny Craig, uh, go exercise a little more. I mean, you know, track your calories. And that was partly because, you know, we didn't have much education in in metabolism or in obesity, because despite the fact that we knew some things about it, we just really didn't know as much as we do today. 
the advancement of the science around the understanding of the biology and the physiology of obesity as a disease state has has dramatically increased, you know, since even over the past 10 years. Yeah, very interesting. Angela, could you tell us a little bit about your work with KnownWell and also with the association? Yeah, so I have been practicing, like I said, you know, initially primary care and then obesity medicine. I've largely been in large academic and large health systems my entire career. So I've really been, you know, more focused in the the, the large health system academic space. And so most recently, I moved out to Boston to be at the Mass General Hospital and be the director of their very large and old weight center. The Mass General Weight Center has been around for 20 years, actually. So it was one of the first integrated weight centers in the country that combined bariatric surgery with obesity medicine, and so really was comprehensively treating patients with obesity. But as that sort of evolved, you know, for myself personally, you know, during the pandemic, I was contacted by by my co-founder, Brooke Boyarski-Pratt, who was, is a very successful businesswoman, but also is a patient with obesity. And she found that, you know, every time she would move to a different city or different place, she'd have to find an obesity medicine clinician, which typically took like maybe a year of wait list, you know, to get into one of these academic centers. And then she would have to find a primary care physician that wouldn't sort of chastise her for the fact that she was still struggling with her weight despite the treatment she had had. And because it is a chronic disease and we really have to treat it as a chronic disease. And most people aren't. They're sort of thinking about it in a, a shorter term format, right? In a, in a sort of like a diet related format or a diet culture type of format, right? Just eat less, exercise more. You should be okay. You should be able to fix this on your own, right? And that's the what she kept getting and hearing all the time, you know, throughout the course of her journey with obesity. So she decided to, you know, she had this idea of we should create a clinic that's specially designed, you know, for people with overweight or obesity or even people with metabolic health issues, which is a separate discussion we can have, you know, where they can come and not feel stigmatized, you know, where we can say, you know, we're going to not blame all of your other diseases on your weight, right? She frequently tells a story about she went in to the doctor and she has a sinus infection. Someone said to her, well, you know, if you lost weight, you wouldn't have as many sinus infections, which we have no, you know, like, like data around, you know, had nothing to do with her weight. She had, you know, a virus or a sinus issue, right? So again, you know, she really was passionate about creating this comprehensive longitudinal medical home for people with weight struggles in our country. And that's what we did at KnownWell, and that's what we've created. Well, that's amazing. That's great. And so what can be done to help sort of foster more physicians and, and create an environment where there's, as you said, there's this less stigma associated with, with seeking out treatment and, and finding doctors that know what they're dealing with? Yes. So, and as Scott mentioned, you know, my work with the Obesity Medicine Association, I think this fits nicely there because like I said, we are an association that started back in 1950, actually as the American Society of Bariatric Physicians. But when we decided to rebrand ourselves, I think it was about 10 or 12 years ago. I can't remember exactly the time when we rebranded. But um, when we rebranded to the Obesity Medicine Association, it was because we were really recognizing the complex care team as well, because we didn't want it to be just a physician, you know, a place for physicians to come and get support, but we wanted to expand it to be able to include the entire care team. Um, we're talking dietitians, psychologists, nurse practitioners, physician assistants. So we want to be, you know, a support for all of those different you know, people on the care team. And it really is important, you know, to, you know, to educate, you know, our own 
colleagues, right, about the disease of obesity, because we don't get a lot of education, whether it's in nursing school or nurse practitioner school or pharmacy school or any of the, the medical schools. And that's what we're really working on at the Obesity Medicine Association is to educate you know, people on the disease of obesity and how can it, you know, be treated in a less stigmatizing, in a more comprehensive care pathway, including medication, surgery, nutrition, physical activity, and behavior, you know, because all of those things are components, just like they are with heart disease, or with hypertension, or diabetes, or any other chronic disease. So that's the, you know, the work we're doing there is really to reduce to reduce that stigma and bias. So if patients are looking for someone, you know, we do have a find a clinician tool on our Obesity Medicine Association website, as well as the, uh, we work closely with the Obesity Action Coalition, which is the patient advocacy arm for obesity here in the United States. And so you can go to the Obesity Action Coalition's website too. And they're all, they also have a find a clinician page that helps people find people who may be more tuned into this, you know, as a chronic disease. And Angela, can there, is there anything being done or can anything be done to try to recruit more medical students or residents or early physicians into the specialty? Would that help? Yes, we're doing that right now. Actually, there's a big education effort that is being launched within identified pilot medical schools, you know, to really uh, do more education on obesity. We have a, at the Obesity Medicine Association, we have a clinician in training uh, pathway. So we have many clinician and training members. We try to encourage people to join. It's actually, you know, only $25 for them to join. So it's a very minimal uh, fee to join, but that, you know, gets you a lot of resources and a lot of free education, you know, on obesity topics. So we have a nice education page with an academy with a b- bunch of recorded learnings, et cetera, a lot of which are available, you know, if people, if uh, clinicians are members. So we're really trying to do a lot of advocacy work to reach out to medical schools and get this, you know, into the curriculum because it's very challenging to get things into the curriculum in medical school because there's so much that needs to be covered. <laughs> But again, we're trying to figure out ways of, of weaving that in more and more over time. Just to follow up, in the meantime, you know, given that, that there aren't enough physicians uh, for uh, the need, I wonder, especially, you know, in a pandemic, post-pandemic world, what has telehealth changed patterns of care or improved access for care in this area? So that's kind of an interesting double-edged sword, right? Because I think on one hand, it has, you know, increased people's access, especially people with obesity who would oftentimes have to travel for great distances to get to an obesity center, right? You know, whereas now they can do, you know, remote visits and telemedicine visits. And the, the disease of obesity, just like diabetes and other types of chronic diseases, can be fairly well managed virtually, right? With enough, you know, clinical information added on labs, people can go to a lab facility now anywhere in the country, right? And get their blood work done. You know, so I think the idea is that we'll, while it's opened up a lot of access, it also has opened up for a lot of other types of telehealth that might not be quite as comprehensive. And that's one of the concerns we have, you know, um, nationally is that, you know, we, this is a in-demand treatment right now. And with 140 million people in the country that that qualify for treatment for obesity, I think that it's easy to sort of say, I'm going to open up a clinic that you're just going to text me your information and I'm going to text you a prescription back, right? Which I'm not sure, you know, we don't feel like that's comprehensive enough to help people with a chronic disease that they're trying to manage. You know, that's sort of treating it as if it's a, you know, a, a very sort of, you know, 
contractual type of um, interaction when it's a very, it's got a lot of psychological and other types of, of, of overlap that need to be addressed again, just like other chronic diseases. Well, speaking of in demand, you, the GLP ones are in the headlines. And so obviously they seem to be having some dramatic results. What's, what's your perspective on those therapies? So, you know, GLP-1s, right? I mean, I, I remember prescribing the first GLP-1, you know, back in the early 2000s uh, for people with diabetes. In fact, I was one of the, and a team of people at the University of Minnesota, we were one of the first people to study adolescent obesity with GLP-1 use. This was back in 2010 before we had any, we didn't even have any you know, we had no GLP ones for adolescents. We didn't even have, I think at the time we did have, uh, no, Sexenda was not, liraglutide for obesity was not even available at the time that we did the study. We did the study with uh, Bieta because that was the drug that we had available. And so again, you know, we were looking at this back in 2010 saying, hey, this is going to help even adolescents with obesity, you know, to, to find treatment. So they're a very effective tool, you know, for obesity uh, management. And they're our most effective tool today, you know, for obesity treatment other than surgery, uh, our most effective medical treatment, I should, I should qualify for obesity, because surgery is still our most effective treatment. If you look at just treatment efficacy in aggregate, when you look at outcomes of, of patients, you know, being treated with X, Y, or Z, type of intervention, which is what we do in medicine, right? We look at treatment X, treatment Y, treatment Z, right? We say, you know, which treatment is going to be best for you? Unfortunately, in obesity treatment, you know, we don't always do that shared decision-making discussion with patients, you know, and especially now that there's been so much press and headlines, you know, around the, the newer GLP-1s, you know, are most exciting because of their big jump in efficacy. So if you look at our older GLP-1s, which is liraglutide, for example, about 10% of patients were able to lose 20% of their weight, you know, with that treatment, right? Combined with lifestyle intervention, combined with behavioral, you know, intervention, you know, the whole package, comprehensive package, about 10% of people were able to lose 20% of their weight. When you look at semaglutide, which came out, you know, now you're looking at 40% of people able to get into that 20% weight loss category. So that's a big jump between 10% of people getting into that 20% weight loss category versus 40% of people. If you look at terzepatide, which is coming on the market soon, hopefully for obesity treatment, which is on the market now for diabetes, 60% of people are in that 20% category now. If you look at surgery, 70 to 80% of people are in the 20% weight loss category even 10 years after surgery. It is the only intervention that we have that long-term data on, right? Because we've been doing surgery since the 1950s, right? So like we've been doing surgery for a long time for obesity, but in they have a lot of, of, of long-term data on the effects of surgery. And everybody does not gain all their weight back. That is a, you know, people always say, oh, I have a friend, they gained all their weight back, right? Well, you, that's good. That's fine. We understand that. But for every friend you have that gained all their weight back, there were seven other friends that didn't gain their weight back, right? And so again, you know, we have to keep all this in perspective and really educate patients, you know, around what the most effective disease treatment is, because that's what we should do with any disease. Cancer, for example, you know, 
Nobody wants chemotherapy. Nobody wants surgery. Nobody wants radiation for their cancer treatment, but they do those treatments because they know they're going to give them the best outcome, right? And their doctor says, hey, this is going to be the best treatment for you because this is going to get you the longest life expectancy and the longest, you know, remission, right? And we really should be having those individualized discussions with people so they can understand the treatment effects. Well, given... Given that not everyone wants to have surgery, do, do you view the, the new, more recently approved medicines as a substantial um, advance? And, and uh, do, does it merit the, all the attention it's getting and the excitement that you know, even patients seem to be having? Yes, I mean, it does, right? Because like I said, it is, it is so much more effective, right? So if you look at you know, that you know, with semaglutide, with 40% of people now getting into that 20% weight loss category, we have always focused on a you know, a five, we know that a 5% weight loss even for everyone with obesity in the country would make huge health benefits, right? To lose 5% of your weight. But unfortunately, when we look at lifestyle intervention studies, these are good lifestyle intervention studies where people are coming in, they're talking with a dietitian, they're meeting with someone weekly, they're even going to sometimes exercise classes and other types of interventions, right? Still only 48% of people doing that type of treatment will lose 5% of their weight. So, I mean, that's less than flipping a coin, you know, like, and that doesn't mean we don't do it for patients because it's important for those 48% of people to get that benefit. But to really sustain that weight loss is what's super hard biologically, right? Because even if you lose that weight with a lifestyle intervention, your body wants to put it back on biologically. And this, the long-term data we have on people with weight loss shows that they regain half of that weight within the next five to 10 years, right? And that's just the, that's not their fault, but everybody, patients, people, even doctors who, or clinicians or people in, in, in dietitians, you know, people in medicine, right? Like still kind of, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, not intentionally, but make the patients feel like, well, if they just did better, you know, they wouldn't be one of those people that gained half their weight back when actually it's your biology. And these drugs, right, are are really attacking that biology at its at its, you know, at its core. And that's why we're which is what surgery does, too. And so these drugs, right, are replicating the effects of surgery. And that's what we've got better at doing you know, research wise, right, is to, to do that. And it is great, you know, for patients to not have to have surgery, you know, if that isn't something that they're, you know, think their body is able to tolerate, especially, you know, I mean, I've had patients that have multiple surgeries for various reasons. They're like, oh, I just cannot bear another surgery if I don't have to. Right. And so, again, you know, really sort of having that discussion with patients is imperative. And for the for the new drugs that are on that are available now and some that are, as you said, are going to be available. What are some of the sort of the challenges with with access and what are we seeing in, in the real world here? Well, it's very complicated, you know, and that's the, the, the challenge. So, I mean, thankfully, you know, Novo Nordisk has been in this business of GLP-1s and obesity for, for the longest because they started with liraglutide for obesity, which is called Sexenda. And out of all, they have put a lot, I really give them a lot of credit because as obesity as a disease state, 
they have done an amazing job of advancing our knowledge, you know, even educating physicians, educating clinicians, saying, hey, this isn't your fault. You know, my my little tagline I, I like to use is this isn't your character, it's your chemistry, right? And really having patients understand this is not about them. It's not their fault that they are gaining the weight back. This is their chemistry that's driving this. And Novo has done a great job of having obesity educators out in the community of, of all the um, public service type of, you know, campaigns, ad campaigns, et cetera, you know, and, but out of that, out of that work, right. They have now created, then they created some aglutide too, right. I mean, an advanced molecule on top of the aglutide, which is the way science works, right. We get better and better at what we do, hopefully. And when they launched that, they had no idea that they would have the sort of demand, if you will, quote unquote, that they do. And and again, you know, we kind of said, we told you so, we told you so. Like we, we're trying to tell you there's a there are people wanting to be treated. But there was still this sort of feeling that because the data would show only one percent, one to two percent of people, you know, back before semaglutide, only about one to two percent of people were actually engaging in treatment, despite the treatment being available. So, you know, they were betting on the fact that, okay, maybe we're going to go to 4%. They weren't betting on the fact that we're going to go to 60% of people wanting to access treatment. I mean, or 30% even, right? Which is 30% of 140 million people in the country is a lot of, of people. And you can't make, I mean, to physically make, I and mean, this drug is not necessarily, from my understanding, you know, and again, disc, full disclosure, I am a chemical engineer by undergraduate training. So I do have some, you know, knowledge, advanced knowledge around biopharmaceutical production, which, you know, to make this type of polypeptide molecule is not the same as just making like an aspirin or something, right? Like making something that's just a, you know, a chemical structure, right? This is protein chemistry that people are doing in order to, you know, get this thing into devices and it has to be refrigerated, has to be transferred in a refrigerated state. So the, the supply chain is a huge factor. COVID was a huge factor in the supply chain too, issues. And now it's like that because of all the work that, that we've all done, Obesity Medicine Association, OAC, you know, all of us have done in order to advance obesity as a disease. We're finally like there and we finally have a good treatment. And now it's like extremely challenging, you know, for patients to get access when they do have coverage even because, you know, there's the coverage issue. So we can talk about that separately. And then there's just the access issue once you have coverage, you know, which is the fact that you just, you know, can't find the product and how do I get my hands on it? Yeah, supply. The supply demand is like, you know, they were telling us like Novo Nordis was telling us early on that September, they're bringing on new manufacturing lines. So hopefully the supply is going to increase. But then it was like after a while, just looking at the numbers again, you know, they're like, well, for the unforeseeable future, we expect there to be shortages. So, I mean, it's just so hard to make so much product, right? And get it out into the hands of patients today with this type of treatment. Yeah. Expanding the manufacturing capacity at these companies, you know, it's a, it's a capital intense, regulated, you know, it takes months and years to build new facilities. That's what I said, because I even said, you know, as a chemical engineer, I'm like, we should open a... <laughs> Oh, we should start a contract manufacturing plant. You know, my husband like is a chemical engineer too. Like we could just start our own plant. And then the people are like, yeah, well, three years from now, you'll be certified to make product because of all the FDA and CGMP, you know, but thank goodness for those things, right? Because those are what protect us from getting hurt by our medication. Well, in some respects, 
it's a problem, you know, of abundant demand, as you point out, and and eventually, as they learn to improve yields and bring on new manufacturing capacity, they will be able to address that. Could you expand a bit more on the insurance side? So let's let's put the supply side off to the side for a moment. What do you see happening with insurance coverage? So again, all of our advocacy was working, meaning, you know, we used to see maybe like, you know, 10 to 20 percent. So let me let me preface this by saying one thing. Our main issue in the United States of America is that obesity as a disease state is still not a standard benefit on on payer policies. So it's the only disease except for infertility. So if you if you call infertility a disease, you know, those are the two things that are on carve outs on people's insurance plan. So no nothing else is carved out. Like, you know, if I'm an employer and I want to get insurance from somebody, I don't say, okay, I don't want to cover cancer because it's too expensive. So if my patients, if my employees get cancer, they're just going to have to pay for it themselves, right? We we don't carve things out that are diseases. We we treat diseases with insurance in our country, right? We have insurance and those that coverage is expected to treat disease states. But unfortunately, because obesity in the early, you know, prior to sort of 1950, 1970, especially was considered cosmetic. If you needed to lose weight, it was because, you know, like, again, it was like your fault and it was just a cosmetic thing. It was a vanity thing. And so that's where there was this carve out, right? And so it allowed employers to decide to add it, but they didn't have to, right? And so because of this now, you know, it it makes it so that you have to add it as extra coverage. So we were doing great about getting employers to, to add on coverage, like to recognize it as a disease and to add on treatment. So we were up to like 30 to 50% of plans, commercial plans covering obesity. And then now, though, unfortunately, over the past year or even six months, because of all the uptake of GLP-1 use, that's really started to even fall off again, unfortunately, which, you know, we feel at the society level, at the association level, at the advocacy level, it's really the wrong thing to do. You know, we should come together and determine some sort of, you know, I mean, as an employer, you could decide what BMI you wanted to use or, or how you're going to define you know, a sicker patient in order to provide that expensive treatment to that sicker patient, you know, we can do these sorts of things, but just to not have coverage again, just to drop it completely, that's where the biggest challenge is today, which I would advocate to not do, right? Let's let's think of some better ways of, of doing this so that we still provide people with coverage. And again, ideally in my, if I could accomplish one goal by the time I'm done with my obesity medicine presidency in, in April, would be that we would have it as a standard benefit. And again, the the issue here is that the insurance companies are waiting for TROA to pass, the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act that has been before Congress. Because the big issue is that Medicare also does not consider obesity a disease and doesn't treat it as a disease, doesn't cover it as a standard benefit. So they're waiting for TROA to pass. Well, we've been waiting for 10 years, 12 years that TROA has been on the docket every single year. I've gone to DC several times to, you know, talk to our senators and encourage them to put it into a package of some sort, you know, so we can do this. Well, and, you know, the all the other payers are like, well, we're just going to wait for that to happen. But I'm like, come on, let's ante up, you know, United Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know, let's come together and let's say, you know, we're going to we're going to treat it as a disease because it is. And it's just, you know, everybody might have to pay a little more in their premiums. I mean, but everybody across the board spread out, you know, across the United States, I think would be much more, 
you know, palatable than sort of each company trying to take on that burden. If I could follow up on that, because as you said, there's this patchwork, I'll call them potholes, right? Because there's some, some places, but how do you as a physician and, you know, treating patients, how are, how are you managing sort of the process on a day-to-day basis to, to deal with these potholes of no coverage that you keep finding? Yeah, Mark, and it's it's very important, and it's it's more than potholes right now. It feels more like <laughs> I don't know, like a unpaved road, you know, like you know. So because it, like I said, it's gotten uh, sort of exponentially worse. I even hear my colleagues across the country saying that you know their staff is quitting because they can't, you know, they're they're getting so many patients that are angry and yelling at them, and and you know I appreciate you know people are you know, stressed out across the country for various reasons. It's not an easy time right now for any of us, but I would ask people to show some grace to their medical team because they're doing the best they can because there are a lot of potholes that they have to try to work through. And unfortunately, it costs a lot of administrative dollars that it doesn't have to cost, right? We're wasting a lot of money with both the the supply issues, you know, not getting people on standard doses and making sure that they can stay on their treatment trajectory. And we're also, you know, wasting a lot of money in administrative burden. You know, when I was at uh, the director of the Mass General Weight Center in Boston, you know, we had 10 full-time FTE equivalents of, of clinicians, you know, seeing patients uh, in the weight center, obesity medicine physicians, probably the largest group of obesity physicians almost in the country. And we had to hire three full-time employees just to do all the prior authorization and manage all the work, you know, around getting these types of medications approved. The sad part, and it gets back to the bias and stigma is because this is a carve out on insurance packages and it's an add-on to commercial insurance, even the $10 drugs required a prior authorization because they're like, oh, you should make sure because you have this carve out, you should make sure you're keeping track of it, I guess would be the idea, right? So that we're going to have everybody that needs a medication like this, even if it's a $10 or $100 medication, we're going to make sure that they have to jump through hoops to get it, which is, that's what's just ridiculous to me in healthcare. Like we shouldn't, you know, I I have to pay somebody $20 an hour with benefits, et cetera, you know, or more nowadays, especially, you know, to do this work and, and versus, you know, just being able to prescribe it and get it covered, you know, um, especially if it's very inexpensive. Well, that's why we have our podcast. We're trying, (laughs) we're trying, we're trying to find that, uh, that pathway to the better access. I think a better example might be like the old Indiana Jones movies where there's that you're walking across the bridge and it's only got a few of the, <laughs> yes. some have a, yes. some have a little slank across and others drop, you know, 400 feet down. So maybe that's the, that's the analogy, but for you then, because I want to move, if I could, Scott, do you have a question about demand production supply? coverage because I want to move also into sort of the patient side of things real quick. Well, I, I do wonder what what's given all the potholes and the sketchy coverage, I'll say. What what do you see patients doing when they when they don't have the coverage? What are what happens to them? We could probably do a whole separate podcast because I do think we are doing the country a disservice right now because we are not being as as forceful as we could be around regulating an industry that's cropped up now for patients that are getting access to product that is completely unregulated and unmanaged, which is your compounded drugs. So the compounded drug market has picked up on this and is making compounded treatments uh, that claim to be semaglutide. They 
are semaglutide in many cases, meaning when you, if you take the drug and you put it through an anal a chemistry analyzer, right, a mass spec or something, you can tell that it's the same molecule or looks like the same molecule as semaglutide, but it's not the same. It's not the, the source compound. The only company who can make semaglutide is Novo Nordisk, and Novo Nordisk are, is not selling their semaglutide to compounders. So this product is completely what I call bootleg, right? And you know, it, and patients are taking it. A lot of my patients, I mean, I'll come, I'll see patients in the office that have been, have been taking it or the patients that come in and I'm, I'm getting them on real product, you know, on real drug, you know, they, they're always like, oh, my friend's taking this stuff from, you know, down the street. There's no dosing regulation. So frequently it's given to patients in insulin syringes that are, that are not labeled at all. They're just like a baggie full of syringes for the patient to inject once a week. But it's a huge harm. You know, it's the it's the most it's the largest unconsented, uncontrolled human research experience experiment that we have ever done in this country. And it's happening before our eyes without any kind of I mean, the FDA made a comment about it. You know, they they stepped in and, and made a statement about it. Right. That you shouldn't, you know, a warning to patients, obviously. But I really think we should be you know, doing more because back to your question, you know, Scott, what do people do? Well, a lot of them turn to this sort of black market, if you will, which isn't even black market. I mean, it's legal, like people can advertise. <laughs> and even some of these advertisers are using, they're using the product, like they're using, you know, WeGovi. So they have the WeGovi on their website. They're using the syringe like to advertise, but they're not even giving people that product, right? So consumers, I meant from a consumer like FTC or something, right? We should really be from a consumer safety standpoint, it's a it's a big issue. But on the other hand, I'll say, you know, we still use our older agents, right? Our older agents still provide, you know, increased weight loss and increased health benefits, right? So quality of life and other types of factors that we look at, not just weight loss, right? We're not just talking about weight loss. We should also talk about, you know, we're talking about obesity disease treatment and getting patients a different outcome than they have today. And we can do that with our older medications as well. And those medications are available a lot of times generically. So patients can pay you know, cash, for example, for fentramine, or they can pay cash even for the branded products that are on the market that combine fentramine and topiramate, which is Qsimia, you know, that that is a has a cash price of around $100 a month. So for some patients, you know, they're able to to afford that. Now, for our, I mean, our biggest issue, right, in the country, too, is this huge disparity issue we have, which is our, our you know, we have a lot more obesity in our patients that have higher social determinants of health. And, you know, it affects them greater. Yet they're also the people that have the least access in a lot of cases, which is also uh, very challenging, you know, to as a nation that we need to really take note of that and try to fix it. On that note, what steps can be, what do you think steps could be taken by the government, by payers, by physicians, by the other, the manufacturers, what other, you know, all the other stakeholders, what can we do to help with the disparities that you see in the market? Well, one thing we've been doing, you know, quite often with the Obesity Medicine Association and our advocacy committee is really advocating for coverage with Medicaid. So Medicaid, as you may know, I believe, and I don't fully understand it, you guys probably know better than me, but gets special pricing too on, on medications often. So they can negotiate different rates, is my understanding, that might be quite a bit cheaper, you know, than even what a, a rebate that might happen on the commercial level. So there's been a lot of states, there's now, I think we're up to 16 states in the country that offer obesity treatment 
you know, offer anti-obesity medication as a treatment path for patients that are on Medicaid. So that's that's a huge accomplishment over the past even five years. That's that's definitely taken a significant ramp in the upward direction. And so we've been, I encourage clinicians of all sorts or or patient advocates, you know, to really advocate at the state level to add, you know, anti-obesity coverage, you know, to the Medicaid plan because they have to do that in a special way because Medicare doesn't allow for it. So they have to get a regulatory override. I can't remember the name of that thing that they have to do, but they have to, you know, get approval as a Medicaid, you know, in order to offer that service. So we really try to advocate for at least that to happen. But I think, you know, we need even broader sweeps trying to get patients access to these treatments that, that really could use it. How about the other stakeholders, Angela? Any any other roles for government or for the manufacturers or advocacy groups? What any other ideas about what could be done here? Well, we would love. I would love to see the the cost come down, but <laughs> that's you know meaning meaning the big thing right of all these discussions is cost. You know, like I mean that always comes down to it costs too much. It costs too much. Well, we don't say that. I mean, we don't say that about cancer. I mean, we we I mean, we we might talk about it, right? But and try to manage it. Certainly, we shouldn't just go spending money willy nilly. But I mean, at the same time, why are we? Again, it goes back to some of the bias and stigma that we're that we're saying. Well, it costs too much. I'm not going to cover it. And I think if we could really, though, advocate at the, you know, I would love to see what. I mean, I'd love to see what happened with COVID, right? I would love to see obesity today at the federal level be treated like COVID. And let's get to get, you know, like Operation Warp Speed. So we need like Operation, I don't know what we call it, you know, anti-hunger games. I don't know, because like right now it's like the hunger games. That's what we joke about. People go out there and they have to try to find their medicine. And it's like fighting for this, that, and the other. It's like a like a war out there, right? right. You know, so I'd like to see you know, more contract manufacturing, more like how come we can't get Novo to work with the government and open up a bunch of, you know, I don't know, there's got to be facilities that can maybe make, make, make it, you know, in a, and get approval to make it quicker. And we could actually, you know, move the needle a little bit in terms of supply. Because right now, when you have so much demand and not enough supply, there's no impetus to lower the price. I mean, that doesn't, economically, nobody does that. I have my wonderful partner here who's been an expert and been inside the, the conference rooms discussing this. But as an outsider, I think there's a couple of things we've seen from dealing with patients. And that is that even if you lower the price, the demand is so great, the insurance companies will still not cover it. They're still going to find ways to say, to say no and put up more barriers, all the other things. I think, I think what's amplified the, the discussion around price is the lack of coverage and the fact that so many people now are considering paying this out of pocket. Because I think the other side that's not getting discussed, as you said, is the, is the benefits of being on this treatment. Imagine a, the cost of the drug that it is today and the, just the recent study about the improvement on the heart, you know, the reduction in, you know, again, you guys are both physicians, but it's dramatic. You know, I mean, you're talking about it could change everything about healthcare and truly be one of the things that lowers healthcare costs. Exactly. And that's why we should do it. I think, you know, for those like the right reason, I know it sounds very, you know, I don't know, it sounds very uh, altruistic or something. But I mean, the point is, I mean, we are Scott and I are physicians. So we that's kind of in our in our DNA, you know, to be to be caregivers. But the thing is, is that 
I mean, we should do it for those reasons, right? A 20% reduction in major adverse cardiovascular event. I mean, what's the price that you can put on a stroke for one patient, right? That's what we're talking about here. And someone did the analysis recently. The data has not been released, so you can't do the exact analysis, but they made up the numbers, at least based on the, we know how many patients were in the trial. We know what the risk reduction was. And even then to prevent, I mean, the the analysis that was done, at least again, this is on data that's not been released. So we don't know the actual number needed to treat, but the number needed to treat there was 60 some people, like 64 people or something to prevent one stroke, heart attack, whatever. That cost is like 1.1 billion, you know, depending on what time period you look at. The other thing that drives me nuts too, though, is People do these cost analysis on patients being on these drugs for the rest of their life. However, the cost is going to come down over time. No one's like accounting for the fact that in five years, we're going to have oral or forgliprone that's hopefully going to cost, you know, I don't know, $150, $200 because it's much easier to make and doesn't have to be cold shipped. It doesn't have to be put into individual plastic pens, you know, and, and so once we have that, right, then the price is going to come down. So, I mean, these patients aren't going to be on this drug, so to speak, probably for the rest of their life. I mean, maybe, you know, certain people, right? They'll still be, I think we still need a lot more things in the market because the more, we just have so many people to be treated. Well, and you got, we, Peter, I've read Peter Kolchinsky's uh, The Great American Drug Deal, where he also talks about the fact that, you know, you've got the generics, which never gets factored in, right? Like these drugs will, like you said, well, in, in five years, 10 years. Yeah, 15, yeah. 15%, yeah. 15% of patients will lose 20% of their weight on the on Qsimia, on fentanyl topiramate. It's a good drug. Now, I have my patients with severe anxiety disorder on multiple medications with you know kidney stones that can't take Qsimia. Like, so I, I can't give it to that person. But I have a 25-year-old patient with no comorbidities that can clearly take Qsimia right? If, if that person had that available to them. And so again, I think having these, my perfect world would be with insurance companies would be included as a standard benefit. Don't make everybody else decide who's going to pay, right? But everybody pays. And then, you know, make any of these cheaper generic or, or even cheaper drugs, like even Qsimia and Contrave, which are much cheaper, make them readily available without prior authorization so that, you know, more people can get access to treatment, at least see if they're one of the 15%. And then, then you have, you know, what is that? That's 20 million people that don't have to take a thousand dollar a month drug for the rest of their life. If I could just, Scott, I've been, I know I've been talking a lot, but just real quick, because I want to, we've talked about demand, production, supply chain coverage, but I think also there's a, there's a challenge around getting these patients started on treatment, right? Isn't that correct? Can you share more about, about the challenge with dosing and titrating these drugs? Yes. So it is a challenge just because also because of the supply, right? You know, and it's a challenge even without the supply, because it's also a challenge even before we had supply issues. You know, unfortunately for some companies, we have to prior authorization each dose. So, you know, patients are notorious for, I mean, I'm a patient too of, of different sorts, right? You know, you're notorious for on Friday, when you take your last dose, you call the pharmacy because you expect to get it on you know, before next Friday, right? Because it shouldn't take a week to get a medication. But you don't realize that you have to do a prior authorization, right? Because, you know, even at, at, at our space with three people, we were still having trouble setting up a tracking system. There's no inherent tracking system. Like we had to create like an Excel spreadsheet to like try to track, you know, when the person's next prior authorization was due. 
we waited on the pharmacy to let us know that the patient needs a prior auth, but then the prior auth takes another week. So now the patient has missed two doses, which isn't a big deal if you're taking lisinopril or something. I mean, maybe it is, you don't want to have a stroke, you know, from your hypertension. But the point is that you can just go back on your lisinopril and you'll be fine. But with these medicines, you have to stay on track and you have to stay, you can't just miss doses and go back on your same dose. And so again, there's a a huge um, coordinational challenge just with all the administrative work that has to be done around getting patients these medications. Well, Angela, just one final question from me. I'd be interested in your take on the manufacturer support programs. You mentioned you gave Nova Nordisk a lot of credit earlier. I know they have copay cards. I know that they offer $500 discount to people who are completely uninsured. Have you, have you and your patients been able to take advantage of those or do you have any changes or differences you'd like to see in those? Yes, I do. I mean, we would all like to see, you know, unfortunately at this moment, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly do not have patient assistance programs for anti-obesity medications. So for example, there's no patient assistance program for Wegovy, like they, like there is for- The free goods. Yeah, program. the free programs. Yeah. You know, we've been telling them that for some time that we'd love to see even a, we would even have loved to have a liraglutide, especially as liraglutide is going to go generic, you know, and now they, obviously there's a liraglutide shortage too in, in Sexenda. We have a hard time getting patients Sexenda even. So, you know, I think because of all the supply and demand, it's been hard for, for them to even run some of those programs because it's hard to, you know, but we, we definitely have been telling them over and over that we'd really like to see a true patient assistance program for our anti-obesity pharmacotherapy as well as the coupons. The coupons are okay, but really when you get three to $500 off of a $1,600 medication, I mean, it, most people still can't afford that, right? And so it really isn't a viable option you know, for most patients. I do have a lot of my patients using these types of savings cards to get, again, $500 off a $1,000 drug. You know, So they're paying $500 a month for, for a drug. But those are really the the top one percent of the country from a earnings potential. You know, those are not people who can who have. I mean, you have to have a fair amount of disposable income, you know, to be able to sort of afford you know that level of a monthly cost. Yeah. Okay. So, Mark, should we wrap up with yeah. our usual magic wand question then? So, if if you could imagine for a moment, Angela, you had the magic wand and you could wave it and do one thing to improve access for patients in this area. What's your prescription for better access? Well, as I said earlier, I think that would be that it would be a standard benefit on all commercial insurance policies that Medicare, you know, TROA would pass, right? We would just, we would accept obesity as a disease and we would cover it in our programs across the country that help to insure patients, right? And those, that coverage would be available. That coverage would be where, again, the lower cost alternatives are not, they have no, you know, prior authorization, no access, you know, no requirements for trying to jump through hoops that more patients could get on those types of treatments. Um, And then we could fix or worry about, you know, how are we going to have good stewardship around our GLP-1 prescribing? You know, who is going to be the patient that gets, you know, access to this type of treatment? And then we could actually really move the needle on our obesity numbers. And we would, I think, see that national obesity trend that keeps getting greater and greater every year, including 20% of our adolescents, right? They continue to see obesity bigger and bigger every year. I mean, we would actually see that, that we would see the curve bend if we could actually do that. And that would be my magic wand. Well, that's great. 
Angel, if I could, though, we're going to release this during uh, Obesity Week 2023. So if we could, what advice do you have for patients? Like someone who out there, who's out there worried or challenged, what advice do you have for them? Well, I do have advice there, too. I'm really glad you asked that, Mark, because I think if the 140 million people in the country got mad, right, about this issue, if they're listening today, and they really, you know, if 140 million people marched on the Capitol, I mean, it would not be, you know, there would be some people taking notice, you know, right? I mean, even if, if even if a million people, you know, marched on the Capitol, right? 500,000. I mean, how many Susan G. Komen people marched on the Capitol? I don't know how many it took, you know, in order for Medicare to say, we're going to keep the mammogram going, right? Like, we're not going to take it away, right? But we need patient, ad, we need patients to come forward. And because it is such a bias, it is such a stigmatized disease, an internalized stigma, right? I appreciate for years people have been told just just do better and you will be better right we need to get over that people need to rise up and say write your congressman write your people go to the you know say we're not go to your insurance company you know and go to your employer right and say you know we're not going to take this anymore you can't you got to you got to give this to us you have to have some access to treatment and that's not just like a subscription to the gym or, you know, we give people subscriptions to the gym and these wellness programs. We give people, you know, access to Weight Watchers. Nothing against Weight Watchers is an excellent program, but that's not enough. We're not moving the needle. We've been doing that for years and that isn't making a difference. If we do comprehensive obesity care, which even Weight Watchers has started to do now in terms of adding anti-obesity, you know, you know, um, an arm, you know, to their, their company, right? And, you know, we need to really sort of have people go forth and don't be afraid, don't be stigmatized, right? And come forth and tell your stories and get out there because even my, I I tell you, even my best, you know, even patients who are such great advocates and their great successes with their, with their weight management, they hesitate to shout from the rooftop, right? Because it's such a, you know, it's such a stigmatizing disease. It's like mental health 20 years ago when, you know, people had mental health issues. And now we have NAMI and all sorts of advocacy groups that, that really support for change for mental health. And it's not, it's still stigmatizing, of course, a little bit. I mean, obviously, but it's not near as much as it was before. And so we really need patients to come forward and say, you know, this is really an important issue for everybody, you know, not just the 1% of people that can fight hard enough to get access. But that's what the other thing I would say is fight hard for yourself, right? This is an area where you have to stay persistent and you have to really sort of do a lot of your own care navigation and don't take no for an answer, right? Like in a nice way, don't get mad at your healthcare team. But, but I mean, cause sometimes the answer is no, but then what I meant is then you got to go back to your employer or you got to go back to your payer. You got to go back to your government. That's what I mean by don't take no. Because sometimes, unfortunately, we have to say no because we can't get it covered. There's nothing we can do. You're just delivering the bad news. You didn't. Right. You didn't make those decisions. Well, Angela, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was such an incredible episode, and we're so appreciative of your time, and your insights, and your advocacy for patients, and what you're doing to make a difference. So we're really honored to have you on our podcast. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for what you're doing in terms of raising the awareness here, because this is very important. Well, we're trying. And we're also trying to, you know, educate. What do we say, Scott? Educate, advocate, and inspire. So love it. how about that? 
I'd like to say I came up with that one, but I didn't. It was my it was my partner Scott. So Scott, do you want to uh, do you want to do lessons learned today, or you want me to jump? Two things uh, really struck me. One, just you know what a pleasure it is to see thoughtful, caring, passionate physicians like Angela in action, and I'm grateful that we have doctors like that available to us in our country. And then secondly, just you know what a mismatch our healthcare finance system is for public health problems. This is, you know, arguably our largest public health problem in the nation. We spend $200, $250 billion a year on the complications of obesity. Um, it's not in the individual best interest in the near term of any insurance company or employer to, you know, care and manage, you know, pay for this stuff. But it's in all of our best interest to do it in the long run. And... And somehow it strikes me, I like Angela's idea that, like, you know, we were able to get our act together for COVID. We, we need to be able to mobilize a public health attitude that would get our act together for this kind of thing for the long run and do, do what we all know is actually in our own best interest in the long run. So, you know, pull it out. You know, if, if, if we can't mandate everyone to cover it, then pull it out, cover it at the national level you know, pay for it with taxes or, you know, whatever. Just work with good, great clinicians to decide what the right coverage policies are and then fairly implement them, you know, broadly and do the, do the right thing for patients. In the long run, we'll all be glad we did. Absolutely. Totally agree with both your points. I, I would add also on the patient side, I loved what she said, that it's not your character, it's your chemistry. And that should be on every billboard out there as we tackle this from a public as you said, from a public health perspective and from what everybody's doing. So this is a, this is a, unfortunately, you know, something in which is, it, it just wears on, I'm sure people that have obesity over the, over the years and, and continues. And so they've been told, you know, for some, so long that it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. So it's not your character, it's your chemistry. So I think that should be a, a bumper sticker and a billboard. The other thing I think that's important is sort of what you said, but, but looking at it from a different way, which is that I think all stakeholders need to realize that we have a train wreck coming, right? Like we are, we are, we, even the FDA came out with a very weak statement about compounded drugs, but there's so many things that are going in this area. So many demands for, as, on patients that are taking over the burden from being responsible. They think they have insurance. And then there's something to treat them. And then they go to get coverage. Oh, and it's not a standard benefit. Like, like all of these things combined, the supply chain challenges, the, you know, all throughout every step of this way of what's going on, I see, I see it as a uh, potential for a very combustible situation that people could get harmed and, and that would be unfortunate. So... I think we have to put a lot more into this. Hopefully, Obesity Week 2023 is a step in that direction. But I think I think this is this is early days, and I think there's a lot more that could be done. Yeah, well said. Well, with that, I mean, I don't mean to end on a heavy note because what you are doing, Angela, is amazing. But these are this is this is critically important, and it is in the headlines. And as Scott said, thank you for what you're doing. And if I I'll wrap up by saying. Thank you to my partner, Scott, for once again being the best co-host out there in the podcasting world. And from our point of view, we, you're going to notice some new things this fall. 
with our podcast, we're going to have more links so that we'll be able to get access for patients to be able to seek help and, and find resources. We'll have information for the Obesity Medicine Association and, and other groups. So I think this is an important topic. I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we need to be back here next year talking, talking about uh, uh, this one as well. How it's evolving, yeah. So with that, let's wrap up episode 11. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Angela. Thank you. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.